Would you join me in a word of prayer before we begin? Jesus, we, right now we seek you. Because the topic we're looking at has caused so much damage in our culture, in our world. And if we're honest, we'll admit that each one of us is a victim of it as well. And so we're going to ask that you would speak healing to us right now. Because we recognize that this moment is sacred. That we've come together as the body of Christ with all of our brokenness, all of our shortcomings, all of our failures. And we believe that there is grace in Jesus and mercy and new life and redemption. And I know that there are those in this room who are just really struggling with what we're talking about today. And so my hope today is that you would be so clearly seen in Scripture for all the goodness that you are and that a lifeline might be thrown out today. That we as a community might grieve over sin and then praise your name for how good you are, of how you are a deliverer in these things. For that is who you are. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So, weeks ago when I was talking to Jody and I was like, hey, I'm going to be preaching my very first sermon over sex soon. Her first words were, I am not allowed to use any personal examples whatsoever. <laughs> you laugh, but more than one of you messaged me this week asking if I was going to be doing that. <laughs> Apparently I am known for a certain style of preaching and so much in fact that my wife didn't even want to sit with me this morning but chose to sit with someone else because I imagine that's really embarrassing. But this is a topic we really need to talk about it. And you might not think about it because you might look at our church and you're like, man, Mason, our Bluff Junior is expanding and, and we've got all these new babies born and some that are about to be born. This is a place of rabbits. What do we have to talk about about sex, right? And let's just be honest. Some of you were thinking that. Okay, I'm just going to voice that for you. All right, but here's the honest truth. There is some things we do need to talk about this because this is a subject that has caused a lot of pain and a lot of turmoil in our world. And it really stems from one of two narratives or thinking behind it. The first one comes out of a 20th century mindset. It has a reputation of being a little bit more repressive. And the idea is thinking that sex in your body is evil. And then if you participate in it, then you're going to hell. Like some of you, you maybe were told that maybe in church or by a parent thinking God can forgive the murderer, but he can't forgive the teenager who had sex, right? There was that thinking that was out there. And maybe for some of you, you broke this rule because you grew up in that mindset and you broke it. And what you felt like was thinking, man, now I'm an outcast. Now I'm not welcomed in church. If anyone knew my story, they would say, please leave immediately. You may even thought God hated you because this was the narrative that you grew up being taught and believed all your life that God hated you, therefore, because you had had this experience. And some of you, you religiously practice this. You bought into it completely. You're like, yes, my body is evil. And then you got married, and then you struggled with the change in your narrative because you went from all your life saying, this is evil, I'm evil, my body's evil, and now you're supposedly supposed to be saying it's good, and you struggle with a lot of friction and frustration in your marriage because you're struggling with this change in your narrative that was taking place. 
For some of you, the different narrative came out for you because it came out of this other narrative, and it's not really new. In fact, it's probably far older than anything else. It's this sex has no consequences. Sex is perfectly free. It doesn't matter who you have sex with. Like that's this sexual freedom is what the terminology is used typically today, which is basically saying that sex, once again, has no consequences. You can do whatever you want with whoever you want, however you want. That's the narrative that also is being communicated. You see this all over the place. If you watch anything other than VeggieTales and Bluey, you see this narrative take place, right? And by the way, you don't need to watch anything other than Bluey. It's like the greatest thing on television, okay? Anyways, um, little parenting thing right there. Anyways, but this was this other narrative that we still see all playing out today that basically says that there is no consequence. You can do whatever you want. And some of you, maybe you are in one of those camps. Maybe you're in the second camp or you've been there, but you recognize that there is some damage in this second area as well. That while it says there are no consequences, therefore, when there are no rules, then you find a lot of trouble, a lot of mistakes happen, a lot of turmoil, a lot of things you look back on. You're like, man, this, this is messed up because we went down this other narrative. Now, I'm not making judgments against either one except to say that both of them are unhealthy and both of them are not biblical because they have the exact same problem. They do not recognize that we were made in the image of God to reflect God, to be blessings into this world, and they neither one of them look at sex as the gift that God has given it to be. But rather instead, as human beings, we take the gifts that God gives us and we distort them. We mess with them. We do this to everything. Right? And history shows us. In fact, if you look at ancient societies, you see that these narratives play out. In fact, you've probably have heard the famous story about the city of Pompeii, the place in Italy that got destroyed by a volcano. Well, ruins of Pompeii have discovered that in the dining rooms of the homes were pornographic images all on the walls. Right? Can you imagine having family dinners or having Thanksgiving dinner and having that on your wall? Like, what kind of conversations are taking place in that kind of society, right? But this was also seen, most of all, in the Roman Empire. You see, Rome had this belief that if you can achieve it, if you can reach for it, if you can gain it by any means necessary, it was yours by all right to do it. And so they had this narrative when it came to sex that everything is permissible, and history would show, if you look at that society, you get things like incest and rape and sex slavery that is permissible in a society like that. A society that I think we would recognize our way of doing it in a country is in a very similar mindset, right? And one of the places that was the biggest for this in the Roman Empire was a place called Ephesus. Ephesus had this way of having religions and different uh, cults on every street corner, and all of it was basically the exact same. Someone thought, I want to have permission to have a sex slave, let me start a religion. That's basically what all the religions were, because in those religions, you didn't have deacons and elders and ministers at temple prostitutes. And you didn't join the faith by saying a prayer and getting baptized like we do in the Christian faith. Rather, instead, you had some very public, grotesque sexual acts that were performed. That was the culture of Ephesus. It thrived on it. Its whole economy lived in part with that. But history shows this really amazing thing. 
that this tiny group of people decide to jump ship from that narrative and they decide to follow Jesus into a new narrative. And I don't mean the oppressive first narrative we're talking about, but something entirely new. And they're in this culture where all around them is this destructive narrative and they've seen this destruction of the narratives. They've seen how it's affected their home life. They've seen how it's affected their parenting, their marriage, their friendships. And they're sitting there thinking, man, how do we live differently? How do we follow this Jesus guy? And Paul is a guy, he's an apostle, he's kind of started the church plant. Years later, he's in prison in Rome, and he writes to Ephesus kind of talking about this. And in this letter that we've been looking at for the past several weeks now, in Ephesians, he's talked about this God, all these amazing things that God has done for us, how God has saved us, how God has been there for us, how God has taken us in our darkness, and he has brought us into a relationship with him by our faith in him. And then Paul says, guess what? Not only are we part of a new community now, but we have an entire new identity. And then last week we saw how Paul in his letter encouraged us, live out your new identity. Think through what does it mean to be a Jesus follower and live it out. And to which he now responds by answering the question that they have that you might be having as well, that you might have asked in some time in your life, is man, How do we live a good life that is different than the destructive narratives that we see all around us? Well, Paul, in trying to answer this question, he turns to chapter 5, verse 3, which is where we're going to pick up. Now, real fast, for those of you who may be in the room or watching online who are not Jesus followers, maybe you're skeptical, maybe you're not sure if you fully buy into all this. I get it. I'm glad you're still here. Let me tell you, most of what is written is for Jesus followers, but there is enough here to help everyone, because even if you're not a Jesus follower, you can recognize that there is some damage that has happened maybe in your life because of a destructive narrative when it came to the topic of sex, right? And Paul is speaking in such a way in this context to alleviate pain and suffering and help us to find what does it mean to live a good life when we are surrounded by so many destructive narratives all around us. So here's what he has to say. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 3. He says this. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Now, when Paul uses the phrase sexual immorality, he means much more than what we typically think of. Like, I grew up in a church where people, when they said sexual immorality, they mean teenagers don't sleep with anybody. But the context here is far greater, right? It has to do with everything from affairs to incest to voyeurism to pornography to sending certain photos on your phone. You know what I'm talking about. Basically, when Paul uses the word sexual immorality, he's basically saying that he, it's anything that does not fit with the understanding that you and another person were both created in the image of God to reflect God and to be blessings upon the world. And so it's about treating someone with a disregard to that theological truth. Now, he also lumps into this category greed and covetous, and he kind of lumps them into the together to basically say both of them are similar and that they are unhealthy because they are all self-centered and about self-pleasure. Right? Now, you might be thinking, this sounds like going back to the first repressive narrative. Right? You're like, Mason, I thought you said this was a little bit different. And maybe in your experience, some people have used this verse and this passage to support that first narrative. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. 
Paul is pointing out, saying, guys, you're aware that there are some unhealthy things in this world. And he's identifying what those unhealthy things all have in common, is that they are all self-centered and about self-pleasure, right? They're all about you getting whatever you want at whatever cost, regardless of what it might cost someone else. That's what it is. And this is a problem as much back then as it is today. For a Jesus follower who grew up in the Ephesus world, a world which many of us would find very similar today, adulterous relationships, men sleeping with their slave girls, which basically is pornography, incest, prostitution, sacred sexual encounters in the local temples, they're all part of the everyday life for these people, right? And in this, you also have this other narrative that says you need to acquire more and more and more, whatever that is, whether it's money, whether that's fame, whether that's reputation, whether that's power, you just need to acquire more of it to give you validation that you are someone important, that you are someone that matters, that you are someone of influence. And that was the culture. All of it, Paul is saying, he's like, look, guys, this is not healthy. This is not right. This is not treating each other fairly. This is unhealthy. And unhealthy actions are all about getting what you want regardless of what it costs someone else. Once again, problems we see today. And Paul is saying, look, these unhealthy actions shouldn't even be named among you. It doesn't mean that as Jesus followers, we can't talk about them. That's not what he's referring to. He means that an outsider looking at your life should not see that you have a life that's pursuing unhealthy actions, right? Or an insider as well. No one should look at you and be like, you know what, you say you love Jesus, but you're adamantly pursuing this unhealthy thing. You're adamantly taking advantage of other people. You're adamantly all about you. And shockingly, Christians don't seem to understand that sometimes because we sometimes still fall into that. And I've met many people like that. And you have as well, right? And it's basically getting at this point right here that pursuing unhealthy actions doesn't fit with the narrative of being people who worship the God who gave up everything for his people. You see, it doesn't line up. If we in one breath worship this God and say, God, thank you so much for everything you sacrificed for me, that's great. Now I'm going to go take advantage of this person over here. That doesn't line up. That's what Paul's point here. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, Mason, it sounds like you're telling us to judge one another. And I thought this was a judgment-free zone. I thought we're all imperfect here. And that's true. And you're certainly going to see that as we continue our narrative. But the point being is that as Jesus followers, we exist to make Jesus famous. That is a community effort. So together, we need to be seeking after this Jesus. If we're more interested in ourselves and our own self-pleasure and seeking what makes us happy, when it comes at the advantage of someone else, then there's a brokenness here that needs to be addressed. And that's what Paul is getting at in this statement. Simply put, he's saying you cannot live to make Jesus famous while living for unhealthy actions. Why is that? Because nobody is better off when you pursue unhealthy actions. If you recognize that you are made in the image of God, and part of what that means is that God intended for you to be a good steward of the blessings he's given you and to be a blessing upon the rest of the world, and that Jesus has restored this purpose to you. That by you being a follower of him, being in the Messiah, you are on your way to being all that God had made you to be. It doesn't make sense, therefore, 
to go this other route when you know that no one is better off for it over here? That's the challenging word where he's saying. Now, Paul knows. He's like, the rest of the world's not going to believe this. The rest of the world's not going to identify with this. The rest of the world's going to say, no, this over here is healthy. And Paul recognizes that. And he says, even in verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. He's like, look, the world around us is going to give us all sorts of clever arguments saying, no, this is healthy over here. But if you look carefully, it has no life in it, no purpose, beyond self-pleasure. He's like, this is the world that we live in. To which Paul would say, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now again, a verse like that makes us tend to think of that first oppressive narrative. And you're like, man, here's where he's going to go. He's going about to make us feel incredibly terrible for being human beings who have made some unhealthy things. And that's not what Paul's getting at, right? Now, we've all heard that narrative, but that's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul's pointing out what God's wrath is. And yes, God's wrath is certainly a punishment waiting for people at the end of time when they rejected the kingship of Jesus. But God's wrath is also understood as being built into creation, meaning that God has wired the world in such a way that when we act out of line with the way that God has made this world, consequences come up. Now, here's how this plays out. If two people make love, their bodies are saying, we belong together. We are meant for one another. And if that is not properly understood by both parties, or if it's understood by one of them to just be a trial, just a fun thing, just an experiment, their bodies are telling a lie that the rest of them can't keep up with. And in time, the lie always comes out. If you ever went to a public high school or college, you have seen this to be true. Or at the very least, if you watch modern-day sitcoms, you have seen this to be true. Some of you have experienced this yourself, right? Where you bought into a lie and it did not pan out because that's what unhealthy actions do. Unhealthy actions promise, they give promises that they cannot deliver. And this is big to understand because the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, that Paul has been talking about, you look in chapter 1 and you see that Jesus has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. That, that God is not God who's like, I'm trying to keep things from you. He wants to give us good things. And he promises us to give it. And unhealthy actions promise the exact same thing, but they can't deliver. And so the question is, which one are we going to believe? What the unhealthy actions tell us or the God who is greater and more powerful? And this is especially a big deal. If you've struggled with the battle with like pornography or have a history of sexual affairs and activities, you have felt this. The promise is this electrifying energy, and it acts, though, in our bodies like heroin and cocaine. It's exciting, but it's killing us. It's destroying us. It's keeping us from being who we were always meant to be, because that's what unhealthy actions do. They promise us the world, but secretly they're killing us. And so we can all recognize what Paul is saying here when he's talking about the God's wrath is against these things, is that unhealthy actions lead to unhealthy results. You all know this. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you're not fully buying into this, you at some point in your life have done something stupid and got some consequences from it, right? Because unhealthy actions lead to unhealthy results, which means that you can agree with the second truth that follows from this is that unhealthy actions are a waste 
of time. I recently heard this illustration that I think fits very well with this. So this is not my illustration, but when I heard it, it really angered me. And maybe it'll anger you too. Imagine with me that you died. And you stand before Jesus in heaven. And he's about to welcome you. And he's like, hey, this is awesome. You've been one of my followers. You're one of my people. Come and enjoy my presence. But first, let's have a talk. I want to talk to you about how you spent your time in life. And so you sit down with Jesus and he basically pulls down this silver screen and you start to watch the movie of life and he starts listing things on the side of how much time you spend in different areas. So he's like, here's how much time you spent in your marriage. Here's how much time you spent on your kids. Here's how much time you spent on your community and your hobbies and, and your church and even in your job that helps to fuel all these other areas. All good things. Look how good they turned out. But then imagine Jesus is like, but there's this other area over here. And it might be labeled something for you like pornography or greed or social media or coveting or envying other people or gossiping or whatever unhealthy action seems to be plaguing you. Maybe it's drinking. Maybe it's pills. And he looks at this. He's like, look how much time you spent on this. Now, let's be honest. How many of you would want to know how much time you spent on your unhealthy actions? No? No one? Okay, good. Safe place here. So Jesus is like, hey, look at this. You wasted all of this time over here. But imagine if you had taken this same time and you had plugged it back over here. Here's the marriage you could have had. Not a mediocre marriage, but an extraordinary one. Here's how your kids would have turned out if you had invested a little bit more in time. Here's how your job would have been. Here's kind of the influence and legacy you are leaving behind because you did this over here. Rather than waste your time on unhealthy actions, you poured it into something more meaningful. Imagine what kind of man or woman you could have been. To me, that's hell. That's the wrath of God. Meeting the man I could have been but wasn't because I wasted too much time on unhealthy actions. That's the wrath of God. We all know unhealthy actions lead to unhealthy results. And unhealthy actions are a waste of time. Even the ones that you tell yourself, and this doesn't hurt anyone but me. This doesn't affect anyone but me. This is just between me and God. And no one else is to blame for it. In time, even those ones reveal themselves to be lies. And you would realize how much you have suffered physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally because you bought into those lies. And I know that personally. See, as a kid, I used to be really into uh, online computer games. And I remember one day I sat down on my computer and, and typed in the website to go to it, and I misspelled it by one letter. And I was directed to a pornography site. And it terrified me, but it also made me curious. And that day began a long battle with pornography. And I was nine years old. Now, some of you don't like me mentioning that, 
Because either your mentality is thinking, well, pastors are supposed to be perfect. They can't be human beings. They can never have a struggle in real life, right? Which is just bogus because we say we're all imperfect here. And I want you to know I have no problem with sharing about my past and my past struggles because I recognize that there's an empty grave that says that there's a grace that is greater than any sin I commit yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? But some of you don't like me mentioning this because you're sitting there thinking, Mason, there are ladies in the room and there are also kids, but here's what you need to know. Pornography is recognized as starting about the age of eight or nine. I've even seen it in kids younger than five with parent permission. So we can't be turning our blind eye and thinking kids don't have this experience. And you might be thinking, well, there's females in the room, but here's also what statistics show in research is that 30% of women have a pornography issue as well. I think that number is actually higher. We can't be turning a blind eye to this. Now, typically when churches talk about this, they are all about shaming and guilt and say, you should not do this, and then they leave, and their pastor's like, I'm happy. I told this, and they'll figure it out themselves. But that's not what we need to be doing. We're a hospital for the broken. That's what God has called the church to be. So that way, we need to be addressing this differently. So I'm going to say something that I wish someone had said to me when I was struggling with mine. And so if that's you, please listen to me. And you're like, man, I mean, Mason, I've been beating myself up over this for a long time. What I'm about to say to you is hopefully really encouraging. You are not evil. You are not disgusting. And God does not hate you. God wants to give you life. He's not oppressive. No, he wants you to have the life that you were meant to have. That's the God we worship. And that there is, in fact, freedom out there. I know it. Because that day, as a nine-year-old, started a long journey for me where I suffered all throughout high school and parts of college. And I thought, man, this doesn't hurt anybody but me. But in time, I noticed it was. I noticed how externally I felt very uh, distant from people. I felt like I couldn't connect with people. I felt very numb to people. I felt like, man, if I came into a church, I would be struck down by God. I found that when I dated in high school that I just saw girls as objects for my own self-pleasure. And I did some really stupid stuff. I look back and I'm like, man, I see how I was influenced by this in those relationships. And I did some stupid stuff. And what changed for me is I finally had the courage to admit where I was struggling and get help. And I want you to understand, I was the guy who was telling people that God had called him in a very dramatic way to be a pastor. But I was struggling with the very things that Paul was saying. I had bought into lies, and it hurt a lot of things. In fact, it hurt my marriage starting out because I came into my marriage with unhealthy expectations and pain that I had caused myself that unfortunately hurt my wife starting out in our marriage. And honestly, I had to go through therapy to get help. Once again, I'm not ashamed to admit my past or where I struggled because I know that there are those in this room who are struggling a silent battle themselves. And I want you to know that you are not alone, that there is a God who loves you. There's a community that loves you. And here, if you say, like, man, I'm struggling with this, this is not a place where you're going to be like, please leave the room. Rather than this is a state where we say, let me tell you about the grace and mercy of Jesus. And yes, we all make unhealthy actions and mistakes. 
and we all have a tendency to buy into some unhealthy lies. And that's what happened to me. See, I was buying into some unhealthy lies. I bought into all of them. But in time, the lies have their day. And you see what they are saying. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, look, there's this lie out there. And it's going to lead us into unhealthy actions because unhealthy actions cannot get us what we desire or what we need. Which is why Paul says in verse 7, he says, therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, when he's saying that, he's not saying, hey, don't interact with those who aren't followers of Jesus or who have real struggles. That's not what Paul's saying because that's not even humanly possible. What he's saying is don't be a person who encourages unhealthy actions. Don't be a person who supports that and builds into that and to others. Why? Because you know it's unhealthy. You know it's destructive. You know how it isolates you. You know what lies it tells. You know how it destroys your relationships, your emotionality, your mentality, your spirituality. You know it. So don't support it. Don't breathe back into this. But instead, here's something else. And what Paul says is kind of like in verse 4 now where we're going to jump into. This is kind of the key. If you're finding yourself, you're like, man, I'm struggling with some unhealthy actions and I need some freedom. Here's how he's talking about Here's how the freedom begins. It's in verse 4. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, that seems almost weird because we sit there and think, okay, you think he would say, be perfect, be holy, be prude, be pure, be something like that. That's the key to healing by sheer grit and determination, but that's not what he's saying. He's like, look, you have all have found yourself chained to some unhealthy actions. It's produced some unhealthy results. The freedom is in thanksgiving for what God has done for you. For the fact that God has broken the shackles, that he's made a way for freedom, that this is where the freedom comes, is for the thanksgiving of what God has done for you. He reminds us this in verse 8. He says, for at one time you were darkness. Not that you, you know, dabbled in it, you splashed a little bit, you maybe dipped your toe into some evil and darkness. He's saying, no, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of He's being super blunt here. In fact, he's probably being really rude, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus or or if you happen to be unfortunately married to someone like that. You might be reading this and you're like, Mason, I find that really offensive that he just said this, that you were darkness. But his point he's getting across is that before being a follower of Jesus, you were darkness. For the emphasis of what he's really getting at is that without Jesus, we are in trouble of suffering some unhealthy actions. The emphasis here is not on our past. The emphasis is here on the grace and mercy of God. He says, look how good God is because we are terrible without God. In fact, we're far, far worse than what we tend to think of ourselves. And yet God looked at us and still said, you are mine. You are something beautiful. You're something cherished. I love you. I'm going to sacrifice everything for you so that you can be with me. That's the God we worship. And he's saying the key to freedom is thanksgiving for what God has done for you. This is the gospel, my It's not, hey, look at me, I'm an awesome person, I've never had a human struggle. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, look how terrible I was without God. But God still wanted to be in my presence. God still loved me. He still died for me. He still rose again, and his resurrection is greater than my sin. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate. And Paul is saying we need to be thankful. That freedom begins when we start to see the things that in our lives that are tearing us down and we start to see how the grace of God speaks in that and we are thankful for it. 
So this is about a change in your thinking. Because remember, how we think of ourselves influences our actions. We've been looking at that for weeks now. This is why Paul over and over keeps saying, we need to change how we're thinking about ourselves. No longer are you garbage. No longer are you trash. You are a child of God now because of your faith in Jesus. That changes everything about how you live. That changes how you look at yourself. That changes how you look at those around you. It changes the way you view unhealthy actions. So now that we can come to the unhealthy actions and we can say, you know what? I see how this was not helpful. I see that this was trying to solve some problem in my life. Do I really want this to still be the solution? Or do I want to trust that Jesus has something better for me? That's the new narrative. See, the point of all this that Paul is trying to get across to us, the main idea here, the big idea you should walk away with, is you become what you are thankful for. You become what you are thankful for. Now, you might be thinking, Mason, I I don't agree with that because this unhealthy action over here, I'm not thankful for it. I'm not thankful for the way it's hurt my relationships. I'm not thankful for the way it's hurt me. I'm not thankful for the way it's hurt my potential in life. Why would you dare say, Mason, that I'm thankful for this? Ah, but you are. And let me explain why. Your brain is incredibly awesome, right? There's nothing like it in all of creation, the human brain. And it does one thing, and it's really good at that one thing. It solves problems, right? Ladies, this is why your man, when he sees a problem, his first thing is, I need to find a solution. That's what our brain does. We see a problem, and we look for a solution. And when your brain finds a solution, it programs itself to always go back to that same solution, regardless of the intended consequences. Your brain is not thinking morality or ethics or anything like that, right? It is purely thinking I have a problem. What is the quickest, easy solution I can find? Right? See, this is why you have the unhealthy actions you have. Because your brain is thankful for that solution. It kind of builds shrines in your mind. So your porn usage might be because it is solving some problem. Maybe some negative emotion. Maybe some memory from your past. So your mind's going back to it. Or maybe that's the reason why you have struggles with painkillers or alcohol or your social media, or your gossiping, or any number of things. Maybe your gluttony, maybe your TV usage. You have some unhealthy action, and your brain is thinking, this will solve my negative emotion over here. This will solve this thing over here. Now remember, unhealthy actions are telling lies. They can't really promise those results. But your brain thinks it does. And it sees the immediate short-term solution. And so it programs itself to operate a little bit differently. So what we are thankful for is what we become. So what we need to do is we need to train our brains differently. We do that by meditating upon God's word, by thinking about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, by having thanksgiving for what God has done for us, more than just a Sunday morning, more than just you know, every few weeks and all when we decide to come into church and say, oh yes, let me express my thanksgiving now to God. I'm talking about you need to get in this. You need to think about it, right? This is, this is crucial for being a, a Jesus follower. This is what discipleship is all about, changing the way we think and what areas we find now thanksgiving from. And I say that because I want you to know this works, and I want you to know that there is hope for you when you're struggling with some unhealthy action, and we all have them, that there is, in fact, a God 
speaks into that. And his message is usually the same, that you are not alone and that you are loved and that there is a guy named Jesus who wants to help. That's the message. And that's what we need to train our brains to think about more and more. And so I want to say that especially to those of you who are struggling. Maybe you right now is like, well, I went through with pornography. Maybe it's with something else. You fill it in because you know what it is because it's the thing that you're like, man, Mason, I wish I wasn't doing this. I wish I wouldn't just open my mouth and say the things I say. I wish I wouldn't treat this person over here the same way all the time. I wish I wouldn't go back to this addiction over here. I want you to know that there's a God who loves you. And he wants you to become something truly great and beautiful. That begins with your thanksgiving. What a perfect time to talk about this as well as we're coming to thanksgiving. Maybe your family does the same thing my family does. Everyone holds hands, you circle up, and you say the few things that you say you're supposed to be thankful about, you know, spouse, money, job, kids, career, whatever, right? And you say that one time a year is something that you should be saying all the time. Well, as Jesus follows, we need to be coming back to this gospel all the time with thanksgiving. And God, thank you so much for how you have saved me. And there's freedom in that. Won't you pray with me now? Jesus, I recognize that there are those in this room who have bought into some lie. The unhealthy action promised them something and they feel like they're caught in this cycle and they keep going back to it. And I recognize how true that is for so many in here. I'm just asking right now, Father, would you just give us a little bit of hope? Would you just give us a little bit of comfort? And would your Holy Spirit just speak in this moment because there are those who are suffering in quiet, they're suffering in, a, in their, their solitude, and they think, man, if anyone knew what I was going through, they would, they would turn me away, they would say, you're not welcome, or they would tell me that God hates me, but that's not the truth we see in Scripture. And so I'm just asking right now, would your Holy Spirit just speak to them to have them to see that they are not alone? Would you give them the courage to be able to be opened up with someone that they trust saying, here's where I'm struggling, here's where I want freedom. And then would you build the bonds of healing that need to take place there? Father, would you help us to stop wasting our time? Would you help us to trust you more? Would you help us to see you more? Father, I pray that that might be true for us as a church, that we might truly be a hospital for the broken, that grace and mercy might be ever so quick on our lips because you relentlessly shout from heaven. And you are our great deliverer. You split the Red Sea so we can walk through dry ground. You fight the battles that we cannot win. And you bring us back a victory. And you say it was for us. And you join with us in this celebration of who you are. 
And so right now is we're going to sing about that. I pray that if there are those in this room who maybe this morning, they need to lay down some burdens. They need to get on their knees and pray to release the chains that they still are holding on to. That you've offered them freedom and yet we still cling so tightly to our unhealthy actions, our unhealthy thinking, our unhealthy behavior things that are destroying us. Father, would you just help us maybe to just release them? If they need to talk to someone, will they go? If they need to see you, may we see you so clearly this morning. More than anything, Father, thank you for who you are. We're so thankful. It's in your name I pray. Amen.